Hello to all you boys next door, mums and dads, new weds and nearly deads, and welcome to Dangerous Amusements, a podcast where we talk about the music of Elvis Costello. I'm Stu Arrowsmith, and in each episode I'll be joined by a special guest to chat all things Elvis, and I'll be asking them to help me compile the ultimate Elvis Costello playlist. Now remember, don't make any sudden movements, because these are Dangerous Amusements. My guest on this episode is an author, music journalist, and Emmy Award-winning screenwriter. Welcome to Dangerous Amusements, David Quantic. Hi, Stuart. Nice to see you. How's it going? Yeah, good, thank you. Coping with this next wave of of being trapped in the house, but um, a good excuse to sit around and talk about Elvis, I think. Now, you've written about Elvis Costello for many years for The Enemy and for other publications. Do you consider yourself a, a fan of his as well? I sort of dip in and out. I mean, I think I'm a fan in that I like to see what he's doing like the yeah I've liked what I've heard recently um I mean I'll be talking about my views on the various phases of Elvis's career as it goes on but when he's with him is like a lot of people when he's making the kind of music I like I will buy it but when he isn't I won't yeah can you remember hearing him for the first time the first track of his that you heard it would have been top of the pops um or John Peel. So it would have been about 1978. It may even have been the John Peel session with Stranger in the House on it and Really Mystified, which is one of my favourites, and which you still can't get in good broadcast quality. But that's another story. Yeah, if it wasn't that, it would be seeing him on top of the pops doing radio, radio, or something like that. I loved Punk and New Wave. I mean, the thing I really remember was going around someone's house and he was like, I was put on the B side or something. It was my funny Valentine. And because it was the punk era, I assumed that it would then go into a fast punk thrash version because everything did. Every time there was a cover, it started off being serious and then it would go mental and it didn't. And we just listened to it and we were like, wow, that's mad. It was really short. It was just a straightforward cover of a you know, Cole Porter song with a bass on it. And that was certainly an indication that he was a bit different. You know, because basically if you did music like that, then you were crap. You were someone from the olden days. And... Mm. Yeah, so, you know, that was kind of him laying, laying out a calling card and saying, I'm not just punk rock new wave. Yeah. What were your other musical tastes at that time? Well, I liked punk and new wave. That was pretty much it. I liked the Beatles okay. and a couple of leftover things like Mike Oldfield. But basically, I didn't really know much else apart from listening to the John Peel show and reading my friend's enemies. So Elvis Costello, who was, of course, a pop star, as well as a John Peel favourite. You know, there were very few people who fit all those categories, so he was around a lot in my listening life at that time. Yeah. And obviously you went on to grace the pages of The Enemy for for a long time as well. What were your kind of dealings with Elvis during that phase? Did you have many interactions with him? It was a very short period when I seemed to see him all the time because he'd been away and he'd had... Yeah, it was the mid-80s and the pop star thing was coming to an end for him. But he start, he produced the Pogues, so he was around a lot and he was going through a convulsive phase. So the first time I met him, pretty sure I was in a pub called the Devonshire Arms in Camden, being to see, I was about to go in and see Los Lobos at the Electric Ballroom and it's a bit long story this, but 
one of my friends, Matt Snow, had interviewed him for the NME, and he put in a load of stuff, I think, that had been not off the record, but not intended by Elvis Costello to be part of it. So Elvis Costello summoned me over and basically said, give this message to Matt Snow, talked at me for several minutes. And the best bit was, of course, I went down, went back to sit with my friends who'd just seen me go over and talk to Elvis Costello for five minutes, and they were vaguely impressed. And then I used to see him a lot because he wasn't just producing the post. He was, you know, going out with Cop, the bass player, who he later married. Yeah. And I used to hang around a lot with the Pogues at the time. They were my favourite band. So, yeah, I used to see him quite often. And once drunk in the same pub, the Devonshire Arms, there was a TVAM weather woman called Wincy Willis. I decided that I would get her autograph for Elvis Costello. And so I did. <laughs> I spoke to her on Twitter and she claims to remember it. Um, okay. Was that at his request, or you just took oh, it no, upon yourself to do it? No, he was very, he was very friendly, and yeah. I think the last time, I, then I, was, that was it, really. But yeah, there was a, a period when I would see him a lot. In fact, he was around a lot. There was a famous enemy joke that he kept doing so many surprise appearances at gigs that someone suggested the reason a lot of bands at the time were doing secret gigs were to make sure that Elvis Costello didn't find up and turn up and do an impromptu <laughs> acoustic set. Well, in those early days, he was very much styled himself in the relationship with journalists as, you know, having his little black book and um, being quite a tricky interviewee. Is that how you found him or was that more of a, an image thing? He was polite and friendly. Um, I think because he was sort of, you know, hanging out with the Pogues and he didn't want to do, it, you know, as musicians are, it wasn't his gig. So he was being nice. But yeah, I'm aware I've heard stories friend of mine was a photographer in Australia and he said that you know he'd hear stories of knocking on the dressing room door and people being sprayed with booze and then you know he had a very very aggressive in the early days a very aggressive image and I think the famous incident called the Ray Charles incident in America I think mm. really upended his world and you know I think he's a, a decent man but I think basically he'd just gone a bit too far with the arrogant drugged up drunk being rude to everybody thing and it all went wrong for him you know he suffered from that but yeah he can be aggressive Danny Kelly one of my colleagues interviewed him around please don't let me be misunderstood and he turned up with a bottle of whiskey and said right we're going to get through this in the next half hour he is spiky I remember Jude Rogers interviewing him a few years ago and he pretty much said yeah I know what you're going to say you know he made three good albums and he's been a crap ever since he's mm. a very spiky person spike his book, yeah. The Autobiography, um, is, you know, one way of reading it is almost entirely devoted to him going, look, Bob Dylan likes me. See, I don't care what you think. I'm friends with Lou Reed. <laughs> He's very chippy. This is a good thing in a pop star. Well, he gives good copy as well, isn't he? For If you're the journalist, you, you're you not going to struggle for lines coming out of him, I wouldn't have thought. No, you've really got to question your abilities if you come out of a conversation with Elvis Costello and you've got nothing to say. You know, ever since that Nick Kent quote, I forget the quote, of course, you know, it's like all my songs are about, was it revenge and bitterness or something? Revenge and guilt. Revenge and guilt, you know, that was great. And also put him in an interesting area because it wasn't a time for emotion. You know, he, he timed it perfectly. He was an emotional songwriter in a time when people were mostly writing about boredom and the Queen. But at the same time, he fit the punk era because it was spleen. You couldn't imagine Sting saying, oh, songs are about, you know, Sting songs are about revenge and guilt, but no one ever thinks of Sting as a bitter. Also, rambling slightly, but Elvis Costello looked like Buddy Holly after he'd been beaten up. 
So, you know, again, you know, you never believe that Sting writes songs about revenge and guilt because he looks nice. Whereas mm. Elvis just looked horrible. <laughs> well, let's turn our attentions to our Dangerous Amusements playlist. Each guest on the podcast has added five songs to the playlist, each from a different decade of Elvis's career. And you can listen to the playlist by looking for Dangerous Amusements on Spotify. Now, some of my guests agonised over their choices literally for a couple of weeks before coming up with five. I think you came back within an hour. So was this a pretty straightforward choice for you? Yeah, I mean, you know what your favourites are, and when it's an area that you're not so interested in, you're just going to pick something that you remember liking. You know, I mean, yeah, if it had been the Pet Shop Boys or New Order, it might be different. The thing with Elvis Costello is, you know, it's either good or it's not. It stands out or it's kind of... There's also, there's a lot of it, you know, so you might as well pick one. Yeah. Well, your choice of a song from the 70s for the playlist is, is one of the real cornerstones of Elvis's career, isn't it? Um, I'm going to be honest, I haven't got them in front of me, so you can have to tell what they are. <laughs> okay. that i mean i can't tell you how much i love that it's you know it's without it's just before the attractions happen and yeah like the first album great songs sounds appalling um it's got clover on it it's sort of not it's representative of what he does much later but it's not the great attraction sound but he does this one record watching the detectives without the attractions but it's kind of a precursor and it's got members of the rumor on it steve golding it's a fantastic record. It's got that reggae bass on a non-reggae song. It's got that kind of, well, it's got Costello doing that 1960s John Barry type guitar. It's a creepy, paranoid record. There's nothing like it. Um, it's a single. You know, it's my definition of a single is something that doesn't fit on an album because it would kill all the other songs. It's like a cuckoo. Um, it wouldn't have fit on this year's model. It certainly wouldn't have fit on the first album. It's an amazing track. It's total Costello. It's creepy. It's got a nasty sexual undertone. It's quite hard to understand. You know, a lot of it is like crossword clues. Some great lines, painting the nails while they're dragging the lake, all that kind of thing. Mm. Yeah. And it's also, I think, the first decent Nick Lowe production. Great musician, great producer. But not everything he did sounded great until this moment when I think he said something like, he found out how to turn all the faders up. <laughs> yeah, it's... It's a brilliant record. And if you worked at the NMA, any time there was a review of a police TV series, the headline was watching the detectives. Yeah, yeah. The lyrics are so cinematic, aren't they? They're almost like stage directions. I mean, you could take them as a bit of a storyboard for, you know, for your next novel or something. It kind of takes you through the song, doesn't it? Yeah, and that's an unusual technique. I think a few people have done it. But it is, it's a, also, it's a great distancing effect, you know, and it's that's what makes it creepy because it's a song about possible murder and you know people I think use the same device in less than zero some people watching television while something horrible happens it's mm. the same idea just done differently but yeah it gives it a distancing effect he's saying it's not my fault all these horrible things are happening but he's singing it with a lot of relish you know a bit like Alice Cooper he's having a great time it was a real step forward for him sonically because to be honest 
the first album, you can see why Americans liked it. The first album is very reassuring, sort of pub rock, probably a bit like Flip City. And it's only really his tunes and words and his voice that keep it going. Musically, it's quite dull. But watching the detectives is anything but dull. Yeah, the first kind of record. And it's the first appearance of Steve Naive. As you say, it's pre-attractions, but we do get Steve Naive on keyboards for this one. And what a brilliant collaborator he's been for 40-odd years for Elvis. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. He just I think the best collaborators are the ones that do things for you that you can't do. So Mick Ronson with David Bowie gave David Bowie a kind of ballsiness, a bit of rock and roll spirit that Bowie did not have. What Steve Naive does is he brings inventiveness you know, no offence to Elvis Costello's inventiveness, but he brings hooks. You know, Oliver's Army, famously, would not be the same record without Steve Naive on it, without that imagination going on. And Steve Naive brings that spookiness and that creepiness. He's got that ability, you know, to take a keyboard and go, oh, you want this keyboard sound. You know, you want... And it's interesting that when Costello moved into what I like to call more boring areas, like Americana, Steve Naive is absent. Naive's got a real pop spirit. I like his more classical stuff as well. I've heard some of his solo work. But yeah, he brings the new wave, if you like. Well, those interviews that Elvis does after My Aim is True and before he gets the attractions together, he's very adamant that, you know, when I get this group together, there'll be no guitar solos or anything like that. And I suppose once you've got Steve Naive whirling around the keyboards, you actually no longer need someone to play guitar solos. That's right. I mean, Costello's always been a very rudimentary guitarist. I've no idea if he's good or not. I'm sure he's great. But you certainly, you never think of the guitar bits on an Elvis Costello record. And yeah, after Steve Naive comes in, you certainly never think of them again. And Elvis attributes the jerky rhythm of this song to the fact that he'd uh, been drinking way too much instant coffee while he was uh, while he was writing the song. I think he'd been listening to The Clash beforehand, but it's yeah, um, well, it's so distinctive. Jerky rhythms are the disease of the new wave. Yeah, yeah. Well, as you say, it's a classic single and released as a single in October 1977, reached number 15 in the UK single chart. So it's first kind of breakthrough as a, a singles artist as well. Yeah. I mean, things like Alison were great. But yeah, it's, oh, it's a great record. On balance, would you say you prefer Elvis's original or the Duran Duran cover of it? Um, I know that I've heard the Duran Duran version because I had to review that album, Thank You, their covers collection. Oh, did you? Yeah. Right. right. I mean, it's the worst album they've ever made, which is extraordinary (laughs) since Duran Duran are abysmal anyway. The fact fact their worst record is actually composed of some of the best songs ever written really tells you how bad they are. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Has anyone else done it? Uh, well, he's done a couple of different versions of it as well, hasn't he, Elvis? He's done a big orchestral version of it on My Flame Burns Blue, which is uh, which is a nice version too. I'll have to check that out. I remember once I went, I met the Mekons to interview them and Steve Golding was in the Mekons and I was so pleased to meet him. And he's, I think he's still quite proud of having played on Watching the Detectives, as you would. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, around this time, the rumour were really good. That album, the, the, the title you wouldn't have now, Frog Sprouts, Clogs and Krauts, <laughs> which is basically them trying to do a mixture of Costello and David Bowie. Yeah, it's a really nice, really good sounding record, that. Well, let's give the final word to Elvis, because I dug out, he was asked about the Duran Duran version in 1995. <laughs> he said, it sounds extraordinarily like Duran Duran playing Watching the Detectives with everything that implies. Yeah, 
Yep, I think that's a fair comment. <laughs> I, I think he's right. Now let's move on to your uh, the song from the 80s that you added to the playlist, and I guess I'll have to tell you what you chose for this one. Um, <laughs> so it was a song released in June 84 as the B-side of I Wanna Be Loved, later released on Out of Our Idiot, the collection in 1987. Yeah, it's turning the town red. It is turning the town red. Best known, of course, for being the theme music to Scully. Yeah, I mean, it all tied in at that point. Costello was working with Adam Bleasdale a lot. He's in the No, no Surrender, the movie. He's in Scully as well, I do believe. Turning the town red is a brilliant song. It's a nice bit of, it's a nice TV theme. It's a very evocative piece of music. I have no idea what it means, but it's it fit the show. The show had a, you know, it was a very melancholy slightly odd show you know Bleasdale always is it's very funny but very sad and Costello caught the tone of it really well there's not a lot to say about it and it, except possibly the fact that this was a period when you know in the 80s his career was splintering a lot he was doing loads of different things one of my favorite quotes is when he said yeah I did produce two of the best albums of the 1980s the specials and Rum Sodomy and The Lash it's like yeah fair enough um but he was off to work with Americans Around about this time, he was making pop records with Langer and Win Stanley. But this is just one of those great songs. It could have been the B-side of almost anything at any point in his career. Yeah. Scully, set in Liverpool, broadcast on Channel 4 in 1984. And as you say, Elvis plays Henry, Scully's brother. And obviously this is your bag, being a screenwriter and everything. What do you make of Elvis's cameo in that show? Um, He's a variable actor. He's a bit like David Bowie in that respect, but I think he's kind of sweet in this. He's quite good at playing the opposite of himself. Henry is what, you know, you would call a bit of a Muppet. No, he's he's sweet in this. It's an unusual role for him, but he's good. Yeah, Henry's mother fell down two flights of steps when she was carrying him and his dad dropped him on his head outside Mill Road Maternity Hospital. So he's, uh, yeah, so he's obsessed by trains, isn't he, all the way through the show? I I think it's uh, quite a charming little cameo, actually. Yeah, it's one of his better moments. He's got a limited range, but then, you know, the world is full of rock singers who've got limited ranges. He's good in it, you know. Francis Scully, played by Andrew Schofield, a teenage tearaway who dreams of playing for Liverpool, which means we get all these uh, kind of mad cameo appearances by Kenny Dalgleish all the way through the programme as well. Yeah, what I liked about Alan Bleasdale was that generally he would tell you the name of the footballer first, which really helped. <laughs> Graham Souness in Boys from the Black Stuff, for example. Yeah, That's I right. wasn't too bothered about the football, but I was aware that Liverpool was connected to football as well. Now, it, was a, it was a great show and it was a nice little... So I chose a sort of little cross-section of where Elvis Costello was at that time in his life. Hmm. There's some great footage on YouTube, actually, of um, of Andrew Schofield being the MC on the um, Spinning Wheel Tour playing oh, at wow. the Royal Court in Liverpool in 86, which is really good. In fact, that's I think that's the same gig that we were talking to Mark Billingham about when Mark was on the first episode because he got called up to go and spin the wheel. on. I think that's all the same show, and you can see some really good clips of it on YouTube. It's, yeah, um, Mark, it's well Mark, worth diving down, yeah. Mark, I know, is an insane Elvis Costello fan. Yeah, he is. He is. 
Well, as you mentioned, he's, Elvis has got this huge list of acting credits from everything from Scully to... Um, He's a barman in the Spice Girls movie. And I remember years ago staying in to watch the Spice Girls movie when it was on the telly, purely because I knew Elvis was in it. And then I had to sit through 90 minutes of dreadful filmmaking just to get about 45 seconds of Elvis saying... So what can I get you? Gin and tonic, please. It's a mad film, but yeah, if you're an Elvis fan, it's No Surrender, I remember being a good one. And there's one where he does a Cole Porter type number, but I can't remember what that was. Sort of 1920s, I think Diana Krall's in it as well. Oh, one of the later ones, yeah. yeah. Yes, it's a 21st century movie. Yeah. Later on, he really got into doing a lot of appearances as himself in a lot of films and TV shows, didn't he? From Austin Powers to Two and a Half Men. The best moment ever is in a terrible film, Talladega Nights, where Will Ferrell's character is walking along and says to Sacha Baron Cohen's character, wasn't that Elvis Costello in Most Death? And Sacha Baron Cohen says no. And it's a great joke because it is, and it is never yeah. explained. But yeah, that's probably his greatest role. You mentioned it, No Surrender. I really like him as Roscoe Deville. I think he's, um, I, I think he's quite believable as that. I always thought he could have that could have been resurrected for something like Phoenix Nights. You know, I could imagine him rocking up at the Phoenix Club and being part of Talent Trek or something like that. Yeah, I think every twenty years he should play the same character, getting more <laughs> and more desperate. Yeah, I do a bit of everything. I'm a bit worried about me rabbit. Just sorted the highlights of me act, you rabbit. Soldier rabbit, can you sing country and western? Ah, everything apart from singing, I should have said. I tell you, the other thing about No Surrender is that I think if you go back and watch it, there's, because um, Elvis is what, he's probably early 30s then, so he's still a young man and he's not wearing his glasses. And there's a couple of shots in particular where I think he really looks like um, Sam Kelly, who was in a lower low. Blimey. I'm sure that's not the look he was aiming for. No, I wouldn't have thought so, but well worth going back and uh, looking up. So I was pondering anyway, I was wondering, of all the shows that you've written on, I was wondering which characters from those shows are most likely to be an Elvis Costello fan. And I, without hesitation, I thought Mike McClintock in Veep has, has got to be a nailed-on Elvis fan. Yeah, something about Mike. There's a sort of mixture of sincerity and ineptitude. I'm not entirely sure. Um I think Kent, the cynical, um, manipulative one, might like a bit of Elvis Costello. Yeah, I've never written Alan Partridge. I think Alan, well, Alan would, of course, like the best of Elvis Costello. But <laughs> I don't yeah. think Elvis is a bit is quite macho enough for Alan. No, no. Let's talk the 1990s. Are you still following his career in a professional capacity at that point? Um, not so much. I'm, mostly do, I'm doing other things at the moment, and this is sort of the golden age of Q magazine. Um, yeah, I mean, both Elvis and myself have moved out of the youth market at this point. It's a difficult decade for both of us. Yeah, I get a bit hazy in the 90s. It all starts to blur in the 90s for me. You know, so good individual records, but I definitely could not pinpoint what Elvis is doing or indeed what I'm doing. Well, I was mentioning to you before the album that we're going to go to now is one that I actually quoted your enemy review of it in a previous episode, uh, which will come to a minute. But the song you chose for the playlist from the 90s is from Brutal Youth, and it's 13 Steps Lead Down. Nobody knows she puts on secret clothes and lies in the middle with her hands tied behind her back. I won't refuse if you know how to use it. Just stop playing that Thirteen steps we've done. Thirteen steps we've 
it's just one of those, it's just a great hook. It's a great chorus. You know, a lot of songs on that album, like Kind of Murder, really stick in the head. And, you know, like a lot of people in my generation, we tend to like the albums where he's clearly looking back to this year's model. So it's Blood and Chocolate in the 80s, and it's Brutal Youth at this point. And it is just a very good record. And it isn't just the fact that it's a bit like an old Attractions album. It's just, it's brutal, as he says. And it's a great title. It's a brutal album, and it harks back to his youth. And it's got a really sweet front cover. Yeah, it's just the thing with Costello. There's a quote in his book where he meets Bob Dylan, and Bob Dylan just says, too many words, man. And it's a problem with Costello that he will never use one thing when he can use ten. And apply to the music as well. The music gets... He's never been exactly prog rock, to say the least, but the music can get fussy, and the songs can get fussy. And the great thing about Brutal Youth is there is no fuss at all. It really is as basic as you can get being a songwriter of his abilities and his age. And 13 Steps Lead Down, not entirely sure what it's about, it's probably a serial killer song, is a really great song. And, you know, it may be, that, it may be sort of a only a third away th- a third of a way through his career, but it's still quite, at that point, it was considered quite late on to be making records like that, um, whatever it was, uh, 16 years in your career. It's a remarkable record, and it's certainly one that, you know, if you were doing a top, whatever, 20 Elvis Costello albums would be definitely in there. And I really like it. Hints of maybe a bit of fetishism in the lyrics, because it, it starts that she's putting on secret clothes and then lies in the meadow with her hands tied behind her back. It it sounds like it's her choice to do the things that she's doing in the song, but as you say, it kind of gets mixed up with with some other violent imagery as we go through yeah, the song. Yeah, that's, that's a very Elvis thing. We talked about watching the detectives all the way through his career. You know, it's like he's been very aware of the violence of love. I want you, songs like that. You know, if he's not talk, there's very, he, he he writes very. He's written no first person songs to my knowledge about hitting people in the throes of sex, but he's written quite a few third person songs about violence and sex in relationships. And um, this is another one, I think. Hmm. Your review in the Enemy in March '94, you said of. Um brutal youth that it has the fire and fury of a debut, but with a wise man's brain and wit. And I think that summarised it really well. Would you still go along with that? Yeah, it does sound like a debut record. And it's very hard for musicians, very hard for anybody to recapture the way they were at the start. And one thing that's quite that's very admirable about Elvis Costello is that say, because he's still extremely chippy, because he's still got something to prove, you know, he's able to keep making his debut album. You know, it's very, it's probably, I don't know, after Oliver's Army was the last time he got into a rut, he famously, you know, was listening to something like, I think, Wednesday week. And he was just like, I've done this. And talking in the dark. I also think the Jags helped. Because, you know, when you sat there and the Jags record comes on and everyone thinks it's you, you realise that you've got into a bit of a rut. Yeah. And Costello has always been about getting out of the rut. And even if sometimes the results aren't very exciting... You know, he gets mocked wrongly by stupid, dull people for saying, oh, he's made an orchestral record. Oh, who does he think he is? He's done a jazz rap. It's like, why not? It's pretentious. Good pretensions are ideas. And if you've got ideas, then you're interesting. You know, he's he's a bit like a pub rock David Bowie in that respect. That You know, his roots are very different and his 
comfortable places are very different, but he is obsessed with variety. Well, he never does the same album twice, does he? I think Sacred and I was getting them mixed up. The Sugarcane one, there's a couple that are yeah, like that. Um, Secret Profane and Sugarcane, which runs into National Ransom, which yeah. um, maybe has well, a little bit of crossover. Yeah, kind of related. And hmm. he does this nice thing where the records so they they echo King of America without being like King of America, just as Brutal Youth and Blood and Chocolate echo this year's model, but you can tell straight away which is which, and North as well. North, is it Momofuku? There are, you know, there's always, those records echo previous records, but yeah, he never does, he never photocopies his past. And I mean, it's extraordinary because I can't do the maths. It's a, other can, it's a 45 year career roughly. And the lack of repetition in that is quite remarkable. Yeah. Final word on Brutal Youth. I've realised that I think we're going to get to the end of this season of the podcast and I will have declared every single track on Brutal Youth at one point has been my favourite song on that <laughs> album because, you know, each one you listen to, you think it's just great. Has it got London's Brilliant Parade on it? Yeah. I mean, that's that's one that oddly should have been on something like Imperial Bedroom because it needs the big sound. But that just always reminds me of the Wendy James album, which is not bad. And Wendy James is someone I've come to enjoy her music more over the years. But yeah, that was one of those things that if he'd done it in 1978, the Wendy James album, people were like, this is amazing. He's really, you know, just done a classic kind of, I don't know, 1960s ironic pastiche move. But it came out at a point where people weren't excited by the idea of Elvis Costello and Wendy James doing an album like that. But yeah, I mean, I always associate those two records because of that connection. The Wendy James one, I think, isn't that where they've approached Elvis and said, would you like to write a song for Wendy James? And he says, I'll write the album and comes back two days later and he's written an album's worth of material. For yeah, it. I mean, there's a there's a story that she's supposed to have met him at the airport and asked him to do it. And I always think the logistics of that are a bit odd. It's like, so they what, they exchanged phone call numbers and that. It may well have happened that way. But that's Elvis Costello and also, you know, he likes the ladies. Um but yeah, it's nice because it's really the last burst of him writing for other people. You know, he he did a bit of that. Yeah, mostly it was for Dave Edmonds by accident, but there was a great period when people were covering Costello songs, Linda Ronstadt, Dave Edmonds, people like that. And that obviously tailed off. I think Dusty Springfield did a rather dull version of Just a Memory. But yeah, that had tailed off very much by the 1990s. So it was nice to have a brief return of that. You're listening to Dangerous Amusements, a piece of stale bread curling on the luncheon counter of life. Well, you mentioned a minute ago Secret Profane and Sugarcane, and uh, and that's the album we go to for your song that you've added to the playlist from the 2000s. And incidentally, is also a song that is covered on the recent album by my darling Clementine, our previous right. guest on the podcast. So that's well worth a listen if you like this song and if you like that side of Elvis's music. Um, but you added to the playlist, uh, I felt the chill before the winter came. Well, there's a difference In the way that you kiss me There's a sadness in your eyes That you can't hide Why do you tremble When I hold you I wonder if you feel the same I felt the chill before the winter came It's just a lovely song, um... 
he can still do it. It's well, the title tells you pretty much everything. Mm. It's in a you know, it's in a sort of Carter family Americana tradition. It harks back to almost blue. It harks back to King of America. It fits in really well with the concept that he's working on at that time. But also it's a really, it suits his age as well. You know, it's a really good song in its own right. And sometimes there's a thing with Costello, with David Bowie, with Bob Dylan, with lots of great artists of dressing up. It's like, you know, like Bruce Springsteen's last album. Oh, he's a cowboy now. It's like, fair enough, we can all do what we want. But I thought you were East Jersey and cars and factories, but now you're a cowboy. And with this one, there's always, I mean, Billy Bragg got rather into this suddenly. Oh, now Billy's a cowboy too. And with this, there's an element of, you know, you're from Liverpool, you were a new wave pop star. But it works, it works really well. You could fit it into other fake American things. like You could fit it into a Coen Brothers movie really easily. But the main thing is it's just a really decent song, which is why I chose it. It's, a, it's like a standard. It sounds effortless. Co-written with Loretta Lynn, this one, and she also co-wrote Pardon Me, Madam, My Name is Eve on the previous record. It's an interesting album, isn't it? Because there's kind of different influences coming into play because he's also writing the opera about um, Hans Christian Andersen at the same time. So we get four of the tracks, I think five tracks, have been inspired by that. But it, it somehow still hangs together as a record when you put the whole thing together. Which is quite remarkable because, you know, I mean, Neil Young does these albums where there'll be one live song, one leftover from the... And you're like, oh, God, Neil, just have a word with yourself, you know. But, yeah, it works for... If he'd done it 20 years ago, it probably would have come... For 30 years, it would have come out with an EP of the extra stuff Mm. as well. But it does sound seamless. You know, without my notes in front of me, I can't tell you who wrote what or what it was destined for. Um, To me, that's... That's the use of Costello trying all these different genres, trying all these experiments. You know, I'm working with a quartet, I'm working with a jazz band. To me, what's what's interesting is the effect it has on his work. You don't have to go to the opera to enjoy Elvis's opera. You might be better off just consuming this album. Mm-hmm. How deep is the red? She was no good. Red cotton, and she handed me a mirror. Are the tracks that were uh, originally part of the secret songs, which was this opera about Hans Christian Andersen, Jenny Lind, and uh, P.T. Barnum, and he did perform some of those a couple of years before this album came out as well in uh, in October two thousand and five. So again, that it's another decade of real disparate output from Elvis because this is only a couple of years after he's done When I Was Cruel which was marketed as being his first loud album since 19 question mark I think was the marketing at the time he then goes into North to do all the piano ballads we get the delivery man and it's um he never stops during the 2000s but probably fewer people are hearing those songs than had in any of the previous decades. Well, you also get this thing which you could call David Byrneitis, that when you reach a certain point, when you're in your 50s as a musician who is successful and who's been very successful, you get offers. And, you know, you, you haven't got somebody on your back telling you to tour. You haven't got to come up with a follow-up single or make a video or whatever. But you'll get a phone call from an arts venue or, you know, somebody interesting. And you can sit at home, or, you know, you can pretend that you're 20 again. But it does become, it's like, oh, I was asked to work in collaboration with a ballet, you know, I was asked to do this with an opera house, I was asked to do a TV soundtrack. And so people's careers start to fragment. And that's 
unless you're someone like Neil Young or Bob Dylan, who's just, who's still, you know, on the road, go home, make an album and keep doing it that way. It's an understandable way to go forward, you know, and it's to be commended that the artists who just stick with that, you know, and it's like, we're quite lucky that Elvis Costello has not been approached to do a graphic novel, for example. You know, that's that we, we know all, of. Not that we know of. He probably has been approached, but, oh God, I can just imagine. Oliver's Army, the graphic novel. I wouldn't fancy that. I'm intrigued, I'll be honest. I mean, I'm not intrigued. It would just be <laughs> terrible. As you say, when you do these different things, you leave yourself open to accusations of being pretentious or of even of musical tourism as well. But I always feel with Elvis that he actually believes in all of those things that he's doing. I don't think he's doing it to kind of show off or anything like that. He's he's seeing them as the right vehicle to express the music that he's writing at that time. Yeah, I don't really know. Um, but I think a lot of people, they don't clutch at these things, but they welcome the chance to do something different because it's very hard to spur yourself on. You know, it's like he's got lots of money, he's got a comfortable life, he's not young anymore. Um, so you do need things to spur you on, you do need outside influences. And I think that said, he's natural. Basically, he's one of those people, he's like Ricky Gervais in one respect, that he's always going to compete with himself. Hmm. You know, he's he is unsatisfied. And while that's not great for him, it's great for the rest of us. Because, you know, when you reach my age, there's a certain point you think, oh, I'm really sad, I'll never hear a new record by Roxy Music again, or never hear a new record by John Lennon. But I might hear a new Order one, I might, and I will hear a new Elvis Costello one. And that's a brilliant thing, because so much of my generation have gone. And the whole thing of rock music or whatever Elvis Costello does has gone, by and large. You know, all due respect to Radiohead and Biffy Clyro, but it's not for me. But the fact that Elvis Costello has still got some albums in him, that it's still current, is a great thing. Well, talking of new albums, in the 2010 onwards category for the playlist, you, you've gone for the title track of his new album, Hey Clock Face, released in October 2020. What do you make of this one? Yeah, I think it's a good one. I think it's definitely, you know... When they do the triple CD, not greatest hits, but career overview, that should definitely be on there. It's very good. You, know, you can't do a top 10 of Elvis Costello singles because there's too many, but it's definitely in the big bucket of good Elvis Costello songs. Recorded in Finland, I believe. There's been a lot of famous people seem to have been competing with each other to be in the weirdest places during lockdown. <laughs> and I think he definitely wins with Finland because you think, how did you end up in Finland? Or did you just go there? Or did you think there's going to be a lockdown in Finland? But it's, I really like it. And I like the couple of other tracks that I've heard from these mm. sessions. Yeah. Well, as you say, decamps to Finland in early 2020 and records, I think the first three tracks for the album over there, then makes his way over to Paris to record the other tracks. And he was talking about how the musicians in Paris, there was a lot more spontaneity to the playing on those sessions as well. He, he'd given them a rough guide of what to expect and how he was going to sing it and then left it up to them to kind of interpret the songs as they go along. And I think Hey Clockface is one of the songs that has come about in that way. Nice, yeah. I mean, he's always favoured a bit of spontaneity, but it's very hard to sort of tie him down because he likes arrangements, he likes spontaneity, he likes the punk rock. You know, which obviously is a bit cheeky. He's like, yeah, it was me going back to my punk rock roots. Your actual punk rock roots are country and western roots, but 
you know, it's all good stuff. Hey, clock face, keep your fingers on the dial. You stole those precious moments and the kisses from her smile. And now I'm living in these hours away we were wild. I'm not wasting any more time. He says, hey, clock face is me shouting at the clock because it's weighing on us all. When you're with the one you love, time seems to speed up. And I guess, you know, for a man not getting any younger, I'm not asking you, I'm talking about Elvis, you know, is is that something he spends more time thinking about, particularly going through everything we've gone through in in 2020? It's a a recognition of how precious time is, I guess. Yeah, and also he was recently very seriously ill. So that's going to do it as well. But, you know... Elvis Costello, to be honest, he's not the kind of person who sits on his laurels. I'm sure if he'd lost his legs in a bizarre gardening accident, he'd still, I'm sure if he'd lost his legs, arms, and probably head in an accident, he'd still find a way to make records. So, yeah, the idea of him sitting down in a bath chair with a blanket over his knees is extremely unlikely. I think he will, in the end, you know, fingers crossed, God willing, be like Dylan. There will be an endless Costello tour with him releasing music of varying quality throughout. I think he's going to die in harness. I think that's how I'd like to go, and I think it's great. So him, his views on mortality, you know, it's, like, it's no surprise he's annoyed at the clock. He's annoyed at everything else. Well, I've got the impression that he doesn't like clocks full stop. I mean, in the 80s, he was threatening to punch a clock, and uh, he doesn't like a clock in clock face. And it, it put me in mind of um, Cinco Minutos on Wise Up Ghost as well. The face of the clock seems to merrily mock these five minutes with you. So it's uh, a bit of a recurring motif. That's interesting, yeah. You should definitely you could definitely do a clock strand in the music of Elvis Costello. Um, I'm sure there's quite a few other ones. Yeah, well, didn't... I might be getting this wrong, and I'm sure someone will correct me if I did, but didn't Clive Langer, when he'd come up with the music that became shipbuilding, I think when he played it to Elvis, I think he was suggesting something to do with the clock for that, and obviously Elvis goes away and instead writes arguably the finest lyric of his career. I did not know that. I'm just looking up. He's written songs called Strict Time, It's Time. There's a line in um, Green Shirt about the seconds and the minutes. There's loads. Could do with one of those word clouds and uh, I think maybe time and clocks. Also, yeah. perfume is another recurring thing in some of his songs. And I think they are in a couple of the songs that you've added to the playlist. Well, maybe you could do an album called Time and Perfume. <laughs> Revenge, Guilt, Time and Perfume. That's good. It's interesting that you mentioned Dylan there, actually, because it, the song Hey Clockface reminds me of some of these 21st century Dylan songs, that kind of old ragtimey feel. It really put me in mind of um, Poor Boy on Love and Theft. It has that oh, kind yeah. of retro vibe about it. Um, and it, obviously he's referenced in his interviews that obviously his dad is from that background as well with you know, being with the Joe Loss Orchestra. So maybe that's all feeding into into the mix that brings up this song. So what are your hopes? I mean, you've kind of touched on this now, that you'd like to see him continue being the, uh, the Dylan-esque troubadour. Of course, as we sit here now in 2020, we don't know if we'll ever get back to kind of gigging in the way that we know it. So it'll be interesting for somebody like Elvis and, and his peers. I suppose my hopes involve negative things, like avoiding certain things. I would not like him to make an electro-pop album. It's worked for other people. Um, it worked for Lloyd Cole recently, rather surprising diversion. But, yeah, just more of the same, I think. I think I'd like to see some archive stuff. I mean, he's quite good at that nowadays. Because there must be loads of stuff, you know. There's the Hollywood High concert in full. 
Um, I'd like to see him play again. Um, I'd just like him to keep going. There's, I'm, I'm just digging out here, actually, because there's uh, in the latest mojo as we're recording this there's a, an elvis feature in there and oh, there was a comment from him that uh, kind of stopped me in my tracks really and kind of hit me much harder than i expected because he was talking about the um the tour that was curtailed as we went into lockdown at the start of 2020 he was talking about the final show in hammersmith and he says if that were the last time i was ever on stage then it wouldn't be a bad show to end on and i thought wow that's kind of taken the wind out of my sails a little bit i'm sure he'll be back I mean, it's like Bowie. I think Bowie didn't expect his live career to end at the point that it did. You mentioned Hollywood High, and that's actually the one thing I've not asked you about was um, Elvis as a live performer and uh, your experiences. Have you got any particular standout memories of watching him oh, live yeah. over the years? I went to see him with the attractions. Um, gosh, I'm not quite sure when, but I got went down the front at Hammersmith Odeon and nearly died. I actually fainted during I Can't Stand Up for Falling Down. And I just remember being kicked by people as I tried to get up. I saw the spinning wheel tour, um, yeah. where a member of the audience complained and Costello gave him a fiver from his wallet. And I went to the pub with him and the band afterwards. That was nice. So I'm at Glastonbury again around this time. And I did see several of the secret gigs. I saw him supporting the Pogues at the Clarendon Ballroom. Um, and him doing songs from King of America. Yeah. And I saw him do an album launch gig about six years ago where he went out of tune. And because he's Elvis Costello, he left the stage. You know, it was a big right. industry showcase thing for, say, an album about 10 to 15 years ago. And his guitar went out of tune and he just left after three songs. Yeah, I'd definitely like to see him again. In a band yeah. situation, I think, or solo. Yeah. Sorry, I, I'm just kind of smiling to myself at you fainting to I can't stand up for falling down because, you know, if, you, if you're going to go do it in an ironic fashion, I always think... Oh, no, I was kind of hoping it wasn't going to be shipbuilding or something. It definitely had to be an appropriate lyric. Brilliant. Well, David, let's, uh, as you say, let's hope all things being well, we can get back to some live shows in the near future and, and see Elvis on the road again. But uh, yeah, it's great to see you. Thank you. Thank you, Stuart. I enjoyed that. Good luck with everything. And yeah, let's hope we see Elvis Costello again. Thank you to David. You can find him on Twitter at Quantic. His website is davidquantic.com. You can find us on social media too, at Dangerous Amuse on Twitter, Dangerous Amusements on Facebook and Instagram. Subscribe to the podcast to get our new episodes as they go live. And we're grateful for positive ratings and reviews wherever you get your podcasts. So why not toss some tatty compliments our way? The theme music for the podcast is performed by Gary Mulcahy. This was Dangerous Amusements, the podcast that seemed like a fine idea at the time.